Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that American Family Insurance wants to protect your dreams. So whether you're at home singing in the shower, every note, or prefer singing your heart out in the car like Drew, cruising, you can save up to 23% when you bundle your home and auto insurance with American Family Insurance. Get a quote or find an agent at amfam.com. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever. So you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts. Ready for the interview, and if you get a cue live on a laptop, watch what I'm gonna do. Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view. Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto. Real talk, pronto, Dr. D, PhD, hit the intro. Hold up, wait, gotta be social, network, global, a home for the locals. Gotta be social, network, global, a home for the locals. Okay, we're here with the one and only Dr. Buffy. Dr. Buffy, how are you today? Oh, so good. Derry, nice to, to be here today. Thanks for having me. Yes, well, uh, I'm really excited to jump into something that I think is pretty important and certainly different than all the other topics that are out there all the time. <laughs> In fact, someone today contacted me was like, I want to talk about uh, something different than business stuff. People are always talking about business practices. I was like, yeah. People never come to me to talk about business practices. So <laughs> like a lot of different stuff people talk to me about. So let's jump into your world sure. of infection control, specifically nursing homes mm-hmm. and how you got into this kind of the background in this first. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, none of us, I would say, have a straight line to our, our career path. And mine, mine certainly didn't follow. I didn't wake up one day and say I was going to try to prevent the spread of infections in nursing homes. Um, really through, you know, decades of working in healthcare and uh, most specifically the last 12 years working on reducing infections in hospitals um, and uh, more at the even national level is in 2016 is when I was invited to participate in a national pilot study with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, and also the CDC and, and help nursing homes start to collect data from this infectious disease C. diff and start reporting it into the CDC. They hadn't done it yet. And, you know, our hospitals are required to report healthcare associated infections. And I just naturally thought this was what our nursing homes were doing as well. And I learned as I stepped into this role that there there's between one and 3 million infections occurring nursing homes every year that lead to 380,000 deaths. That's over a thousand a day. 
And this was before COVID. So you can imagine, I was like, why aren't, why aren't we doing more about this? Um, and so I was, I was a big part of this national pilot study. I helped um, co-lead over 500 nursing homes across the country, uh, enroll and, and start reporting and conducting surveillance. Um, and it was just, it was probably one of the toughest jobs I've ever had, given the just the just the different challenges within our nursing homes. Um, I was I was pulled into many different directions with my my job, and I really was so focused on the nursing homes. I decided to launch my own company. This was in 2018, um, and really start working just 100% dedicated to reducing infections in nursing homes. So this was all before the pandemic. Um, and now, you know, here we are. So that's kind of how here I got started are. in this area. Yeah. Here we are. I'm somewhat familiar with nursing homes. My wife, my wife has worked in them throughout the years. She's been a nurse for 20 some years and uh, in assisted livings and things. And I always wonder what, what's the deal with nursing homes? I always feel like there's always something going on there that is is different or the care is not where it should be, especially in infectious control. What is the, what are the primary issues you saw in, in these 200 visits or so you've done uh, and more obviously? Yeah. What's the common denominator among all facilities in terms of lack of infection control or better mitigation of it? Yeah, well, I wanna be careful because it's really easy in our culture, it's like, our nursing homes are pretty much at the bottom of the barrel mm. for resources, for support. In fact, we were just starting in 2016, 2017, 2018, the nursing homes were federally required to have an infection control program. I mean, we're not talking in the early 2000s, we're talking just moments before that led up to the pandemic. And there was all of, there was now finally attention, like, hey, we have a problem with infections in nursing homes. But to me, it was a little too late. And so even though there's national programs, the nursing homes are always last, always kind of last. So why too. is that? There are many different challenges. There's many priorities in our long-term care facilities. And so all of them matter, you know, um, it could be just how complex the care is and, you know, our federal dollars can only go so far. And so we're trying to focus on other areas, of course, to keep our residents safe. Um, but to me, there's been a lack of attention, a lack of funding. There's always lower reimbursements for this care. And so I would say that they just haven't had the attention or the support. And so as uh, in our community, I'm sure you've seen this or you've heard it from your wife and thank you to your wife for her service in this yes. industry. But it's like the, the news media, when something wrong, when something bad happens, it is blasted all over the news, right? I mean, that's what we see. That's all we really know. I mean, do we see on the nightly news of like the great care a facility is providing? No, no, no. no. right? Do we celebrate even nursing home workers? I mean, during the pandemic, we were celebrating our hospital workers and making sure they had PPE. All the meanwhile, our nursing homes had no PPE 
and we were vilifying them. Like they were almost like you, these horrible death traps is what the media would portray them. So it's just a a way that we as a culture uh, perceive them. And then as this, as a, you know, as the community, we don't know any different. Right. I mean, so it's, it is complex. Um, and you know, that's why I wrote my book because as I was traveling across the country in all these different nursing homes, I kept hearing the same story over and over and over again. And I felt like more of a moral obligation to tell the story so that the truth can actually be talked about and not the truth about these horrible nursing homes, (laughs) the truth about the dedicated staff that show up every day, the truth about their actual challenges and the truth about really how we as a society have kind of put them as a last priority for funding, for support, as far as like legislator, legislative uh, measures and whatnot. And, and a, really a call to action that we can do better than this. Is there a, um, a strange relationship we have with senior citizens in the United <laughs> States versus other countries? Yeah, I mean, I, I had interviewed a, a gal from the Philippines and um, for my book, and actually a lot of the healthcare workers in our long-term care are from other countries and it Mm. is in their culture like they're kind of baffled when they first come to the u.s (laughs) they're like wait your your elders your disabled are all in one place they're not with the families we just have a different culture um and many in for for example this nurse that i had interviewed um she was from the philippines and you know their their culture is different they they are multicultural in their homes. You know, when when um, the the daughter gets married or the son gets married, the wife comes and lives in the in the house. And then as they grow up, there's always kids or family around. So when when grandma is is sick and and not able to care for herself, there's always family there to care for them. And we just don't have that in our culture. I don't I don't think it's wrong. It's just different. It's just yeah, different. It's interesting. It's just definitely in traveling to different places, you see the difference. And it, I mean, it's funny how humans are in different places in the world and ethnicities and mm-hmm. cultures and how we treat each other in different ways. But I want to uh, get into the infection control aspect, like in, in the pandemic. So obviously yeah. you're talking about these things pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. What did you see as we started the pandemic and as we kind of got into the early stages, what was the infection control kind of anomalies or things that you were seeing were like, wow, this is a real issue. Yeah. Well, I I just want to back up just one step and say that when I started my own business, I I have an epidemiology background, data analytics. And so I'm very all about measuring and data Mm -hmm. and the CDC, that's kind of where I was getting, you know, my like having nursing homes report into the CDC. And I was so on fire about this. When I started my own, my company, I'm like, I'm going to get every nursing home in the country reporting their data to CDC. And we're going to know what the infections are. We're going to work on them. <laughs> it's a tough job to do. <laughs> I was just, I was, I was so excited, and um, because I see the power of it, right? I like when we know, when we can see what's wrong, we then that's power, and we can work on it. And I started going into nursing homes, and I was like, I started seeing basic infection control practices. Like they, like nursing homes didn't have good access to hand sanitizer. 
their environmental cleaning was very poor. So I started seeing these basic principles that I was like, oh my gosh, like I need to start with step one, not step 30, you know, like yeah. be realistic here. So these were things that I started seeing before the pandemic. When, when we started hearing about this virus, I knew our nursing homes. Well, first I was praying and hoping it wouldn't get into our nursing homes for a, ver a variety of reasons. And I talk about that in my book, but I knew we wouldn't be prepared because we weren't prepared for just our basic infection control practices before. And so it's like, you need time, right? We didn't have the time. It was only in 2017 that it was federally required for a nursing home to have an infection control program. It was only the end of 2019, November of 2019, that each facility in the US was required to have a part-time staff working on infection control. So we just, we weren't prepared. So you can imagine that as we stepped into it, as the crisis unfolded, as nursing homes became began to be required to take residents, whether they were prepared or not, whether they had PPE or not, whether they had staff or not, they were required to take care for residents. It was a, it was, it was just a, a crisis, and um, we didn't have what we needed. I, I worked with facilities that were duct, duct taping garbage bags together because they didn't have gowns. Um, we had staff quit, you know, because they were afraid. And so um, it, the, if the basics weren't there before, you can imagine that they weren't there, they weren't prepared. The hospitals weren't even prepared. Nobody was prepared for COVID. And hospitals have had robust infection control programs for decades. So to say then, it, there's no way our nursing homes could, could even come close to being prepared. Yeah, of course. I mean, what was the the emotional fallout of all this that you've seen with talking with, yeah, um, you know, I'm going to say this differently. So, cause I was thinking about how my wife would say this, so this, like the caregivers of the people in the home, uh, the, the children of maybe their parents who are living in nursing homes. What was the information and that was disseminated to them? And what's the fallout emotionally that you saw in all these places that you visited? Yeah. I mean, Ultimately, that's why I wrote the book to actually deal with my own trauma, mm. because it was it was um, when you again, you hear the same story over and over again, and you hear the pain and you sit and cry with the administrators or the staff. It's like that's it, it just compelled me like I had to write it for my own therapy in a sense, like I can't hold all this in me. I've got to share it. Right. And and that was it. I mean, we've had as far as the fallout, I mean, we've had so many people leave the industry. We always had high turnover in this industry anyway, but it's at a level that none of us have seen now. And what I'm starting to see is now even the leadership team, you know, the administrators, the directors of nurses, they're like, I'm just done. Like, I'm just, it's, I'm over it. And I just want to slide this in here because it's important. It's important for people to know this. I, I just mentioned how the nursing homes weren't prepared. I just mentioned how they were just starting to really ramp up on their infection control practices. And what's important to note is the, the state and federal survey process that occurs every year through CMS, it, it's a requirement to participate. It's a requirement to receive funding um, from Medicare. All surveys across the entire medical industry were halted 
in March of 22 because of the COVID, because of the pandemic, except for nursing homes, there was a, a, an actual increase in funds of $80 million for st state surveyors to go on site to nursing homes in the middle of an outbreak and basically point out everything they were doing wrong and provide citations to them. And, and I say that because that's what was causing so much of the stress because guidance was changing sometimes two, three times a day. And it was literally, then you'd have a surveyor come in and basically um, hand out a citation for this nursing home for what they were doing wrong when nobody knew what we were doing. So instead of support and collaboration, they got punishment. And I, I think it's important for people to understand that because it actually made the response for the nursing homes even harder. They, they had to jump through a lot of hoops with paperwork. They had to stop what they were doing to answer survey questions. And it, it just made, it's like fighting a fire and you have your regulatory agency coming in and saying, we're gonna check your sprinklers now. That's not the time to do a survey, right? That's not the time for an inspection. And so that also added a huge burden to these facilities that nobody knows about. None of the public are aware that that occurred. Yeah, I was like, I was like, I never heard of this, and yeah. I'm pretty sure a lot of people have no clue this was happening during this time. Yeah, it was. It was that was probably one of the biggest burdens that by July of 2020, nursing homes had been fined over 15 million dollars in, in citations. Um, wow. And that was just July of 2020. I don't know <laughs> oh what the stats are after that, but um, I was actually a part of, I was on site in a nursing home and I saw this process unfolding um, and it was devastating even to me because we're right in the middle of an outbreak. You're, you're doing everything you can to protect the residents. And then the surveyors walk in the next day and they're gonna tag you because maybe your gown isn't tied the right way or you didn't disinfect a pen the right way. Like that was the nitpicky stuff that the facilities were getting in trouble for. And that, that, that was very hard. That was very burdensome for the, the community, for the nursing homes. I think this is part of the frustration with kind of regulatory agencies is mm. this, this strange relationship of like, you know kind of what needs to be done, but then you allocate resources for something that seems very frivolous during the time period mm -hmm. that something needs to be done. And I've seen this, like when I, I just interviewed somebody in the child welfare system working there, almost the same exact type of thing and how it mm -hmm. works. I'm trying to understand, I understand it's a lack of priority, but it feels like there's something deeper there that there's gotta <laughs> be something deeper. I, mean, I, I, I don't want to believe that it's just ridiculousness from people like, What's the deeper meaning behind this that we keep doing stuff like this? Well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. And, you know, when I first started writing my book, I was starting to write it from the perspective of an infection preventionist epidemiology, because that's my work. Yeah. And I started to write about it. How could I ignore when I'm talking to these facilities, this topic kept getting brought up over yeah. and over and over again. And I'm like, okay, I don't know anything about this, but let's explore this a little bit deeper. And I mean, I am, I know we need regulations in this industry, sure. like it before we had regulations, you know, it, it, it was a mess too. So I just think we've swung to an opposite extreme where our go-to is to punish, punish, punish. Let's, let's 
find, find the nursing homes. Let's, you know, throw more citations at them, more monetary um, penalties, you know, and that's going to fix it. Well, from my experience, it doesn't. From my experience, let's say they got an infection control tag. They have 10 days to show the state they're, it's, they're in compliance which is fine. Then the state surveyor will come out and revisit and make sure they're in compliance. They may have to submit some audits for a few months, but nothing's changed. There's not real change that occurs. And so my, my, what I'm asking for is let, I mean, there's actually um, a call to Congress for $500 million for more of these surveys. And I say, what if we use some of that money, at least half of that money for, for support, for collaboration? Um, who's there's already- up with these figures, these numbers, and why are they pushing more of this? Like who's I, pushing more of this? I, I just, I think it's what we've done. And, and here, here's the perspective that I don't want to, that I don't want to, um, I don't, I don't want to say that I don't understand this because there are, there are bad facilities out there. Sure. There, there are harms that happen to loved ones that are devastating and that are absolutely uncalled for. I, I am not naive to the fact that that happens. And there are bad actors that, um, that are running some of these nursing homes that will take dollars that are supposed to go to frontline and put it in their pocket. Like I'm not saying there is corruption as in any industry that occurs. So, so let's deal with those bad actors. Let's, let's, you know, deal with them, but not punish the entire industry as the result of that. But how do you have a more moderate, you said swing to the extremes, which yeah. That's in a lot of things that happens. Sure, of course. With, with our country, especially. But how do we get more to a moderate, a more practical approach towards towards this in nursing homes? Well, fortunately, I mean, as I was writing the solutions, because I don't want to just talk about the problem, right? Like let's let's get into the solutions. And as I'm searching out the solutions, there are solutions that have that have been there are they're kind of ready for us to step into right now. So for example, CMS is the regulatory body, but they also have a division called the Quality Improvement Organizations or QIOs that I, that's, I used to work for a QIO that offers support, that offers collaboration. So you already have this built-in system with funded by the same agency that if we provided more funding, it could hire more staff then we could do more on-site visits and actually support them and track that support, then we can really go a long way in ensuring that the, the improvement is occurring. So there's already that built-in mechanism. There's a built-in mechanism even through the depart the health departments. They have a, a healthcare associated infection HAI division that's from the CDC. So like we have these, these divisions, but unfortunately, um, in, in the, the budgets are very small. So let's increase those budgets so we can hire more staff to help with this work versus just kind of, I almost want to say it's kind of an easy way to say, we're going to throw all this money and, yeah. and find them and cite them. And that just adds so, if, if I could just describe to the viewers how that feels to the people working in the middle of a crisis yes. where they had the state surveyors come in five, six, seven, eight times and just pointing out what they were doing wrong 
it's like, who wants to go to work and deal with, you know what right. I mean? Like, of course, was there anything we really knew about COVID in the beginning? No, no. <laughs> I mean, we were all just not. trying to operate the best we could. So I just say, let's give our nursing homes, like, let's cut them a little bit of break <laughs> while we help them hold them accountable and, and provide the support. So one thing my company does is, and we're actually funded through a QIO. So CMS is starting to work on this is we are going on site to facilities still. And we provide, um, we provide one-on-one -on -one support. We do an assessment. We are there to help. And 99%, <laughs> there's always that 1%, but 99% of our nursing homes say, why can't we have more of this? Mm. This is what helps us this collaborative coaching, it's coaching, and to have this, more of these visits. Um, and it looks like we're going to be funded to do more of these, actually. So we are moving in the right direction to be able to, to do more of this collaborative work. And I, I just got a call today that it looks like we're going to have some funding to do hundreds more. And I'm just over the moon thrilled because this is how many more facilities we're going to be able to help and, and ultimately reduce harms and save lives with our, our vulnerable population. Why is the funding so hard to come by? Why does it seem like they have to really push to get it when something else is like, we're gonna throw a huge amount of money on something that doesn't seem that important for like well, the time run. Politics is not my gig. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, what I can speak to is in the nursing home industry themselves. So when I, I had started my company, I would reach out to the nursing homes and I was like, let me help you. Let me support you. I was very, very inexpensive, like ridiculously inexpensive. And I had a nursing home administrator tell me once, Buffy, I don't care if you only charged a dollar, I couldn't afford you because there's just no room in their budget. There, the, the Medicare reimbursements, the Medicaid reimbursements are, and there's even, again, a petition to cut them by hundreds of millions more. So we just, it's really through, because it's a, it's a program that's funded through the federal government, we need federal dollars. I mean, that's just yeah. what it boils down to. We do have private pay patients in these, in, this, in the nursing homes, but if you're there long-term, you know, unless you whittle down your entire life savings, you're under Medicaid and those, those reimbursement dollars are very small for the nursing homes. Yeah. You know what? I've talked to my wife about this plenty of times about, cause when she used to be director of nursing at an assisted living and places like that, these were mm -hmm. the conversations mm -hmm. you would come home and talk to me about literally the same thing you're mm -hmm. talking about. And it's, it's kind of tough here in the debts continuing to happen so much because she's a nursing instructor now at a college. Nice. So, but you know, they're dealing with, it's hard to get people into the business. Sure. You mentioned the staffing shortage. How does, mm -hmm. how can that be addressed uh, to get more people into nursing yeah. homes working that, you know, it's wonderful people who do these incredible jobs. Right. Well, first of all, um, we need to respect the profession yes. that, that, that they're in there. There is very little respect for our certified nursing assistants are, are that are doing the heavy lifting. Most they're, definitely, you know, they're changing, they're bathing, they're feeding. I mean, I spend, you know, time in the nursing homes and, you know, you've got to, I always, I always bring it back to this. Like my grandparents lived out their final days in a nursing home and their care was too much for us to be able to, to do on our own. And, and I think about just those, those two individuals, my grandma and grandpa, 
then you have a, an entire facility of oh, maybe 50 to 100, right? Like the care is so hard. You have even, you know, residents that have mental decline. They don't realize, you know, they, they it's just a very difficult, difficult um, environment. And yet those, the, the, the staff that work in this healthcare setting, you will find many of them have worked there their entire career. They love our, our loved ones. They love the residents. They love what they do. It's very rewarding. I mean, I, it is incredibly rewarding work, but they don't get the respect. They don't get the pay. I write in my book that many, even um, before the pandemic, and, and hopefully this has changed, but many of our, like even housekeepers or CNAs only got part-time work in nursing homes. So they, they didn't get benefits. They had to work two jobs to make, you know, the 40 hours a week. Um, many of them are on food stamps or government assistance. So we need to make this um, a, a very, we need to make it more of an attracting, attractive career. Yes. And, and again, going back to, you know, the whole even survey process to, to know that, I mean, now it's different. We're not, the surveyors aren't coming in all the time, which is good, but um, we just need it to not be such a, uh, we need it more attractive, basically bottom line. We need to make this a job that people are going to want to go to. They get, they get paid a good living um, where they, you know, they don't, they can go to Walmart or McDonald's and make more, right? Like yeah. we have to, we have to do better than that. Um, and right now, a lot of states, even um, my state of Arizona, our governor has done a lot there. They put some grant money towards recruiting certified nursing assistants and retaining them. So, um, you know, there, there are initiatives right now to recruit and bring in that staff, but it's, it's going to have to last past this pandemic. We need to invest yeah. in this healthcare. We need to, because it's our loved ones, right? I mean, we are where we are today because of them. And so the end of their life, we really need to, um, we need to pay the respect and dignity that they deserve. So two things, what do you think has led to it not being seen as an attractive career in these different things? And if you had the power to change it all, what would make it really attractive? What could be done? Besides well, I, pay, you know? Yeah, I mean, well, pay is a big one if you think about it. Right. I mean, if you can make $2 an hour more somewhere else, you know, I mean, and if you're having to go on government assistance for to pay your bills, that's going to make a difference. So pay is definitely one. But I think, and I, it's interesting, I just talked to a regional hospital director on the phone on, um, I think it was Friday, and and she's over a big corporation, and and we talked about the culture, even in our healthcare culture. You know, when I worked at a hospital, we referred to the skilled nursing facilities as kind of the stepchild of healthcare. So I think we don't even, as the healthcare profession, we don't respect that level of care. We don't we don't think the care is good. We don't think the nurses are good. And, and, and many times our new grads, our new nurses, as soon as they get some experience under their belt, they're going to be out of there and go work at the hospitals. You know, we also need to increase the staffing to patient ratio. If you're a nurse caring for 20 patients, are you going to be able to really provide good care? And that goes against your own moral and ethical standards. You know that they need a higher level of care, but how much can you really do? And unfortunately, there are not these standards of, um, in some states there are, but we really need lower, um, we need lower patient to staff ratios. Right yes. now they're far too high. And it's just, it's, it burns the staff out. Um, 
it, it, when you have that many patients, it's hard to wash your hands in between every resident. It's hard to clean the vitals machines and to do the basic infection control practices when you're just trying to do basic care, you know, infection control practices go out the door when you're just, you know, trying to deliver a meal and deliver a bath and deliver, you know, the basics that you need to provide. So we definitely need more staff to patient ratios. And I think when we do that, we'll decrease burnout, we'll decrease um, just the, the challenges that it is to deliver the good care. You think it would be a good idea to have, and I don't know if this exists or not, but like staff people who are essentially in facilities who are looking over the, the mental well-being of the staff there spending oh. time with them. Like, <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> don't they doubt, I feel like there's such a necessary thing in any service profession like that. But I feel like mm -hmm. as a as a nation, we don't see that as a valuable thing for some reason, you know? Yeah, the mental health too. So um, I'll just state that I, I knew when I was writing my book that I I had a choice to make. I, I could stretch it out and it could be much longer or I could write it, get it out and start the second book. So that's what I did. And I've interviewed, it was an actual occupational therapist who began working in a nursing home. He actually never knew what a nursing home was until he started the, his, the person who recruited him didn't even tell him it was a nursing yeah. home, but he went through this whole thing about moral injury and how he couldn't provide the level of care. And he saw even so many of the staff traumatized. So he's actually, he actually created a program um, on this whole process and mental health and stress management. Um, and so I'm learning more about that as well, because even, I mean, the staff are so burned out and, and they just, then they don't care anymore. Right. right. Then the whole reason we got into healthcare, it, 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 we're done because, because of that. And, and so, um, so we definitely need to address mental health. I started seeing this in June of 2020, when I was working with Doctors Without Borders, we actually had a psychologist on our team. And I thought that was fantastic because I'd never seen that before. And and I haven't seen it since. That's crazy that you said that. Like that isn't <laughs> yeah. that a crazy statement that like this yeah. should be necessary. Like 100% <laughs> like when you especially in in the sight of this pandemic it's like if you have 20 of your patients die that you've cared for for years right. like that's your family and then there's no time to grieve and you're expected to get up and go back to work because you have to because you got to care for the other residents. I mean that's you know um we in my book is my book is a hard read because it describes the nursing homes and I've had some nursing home administrators saying I can't read this yet because I'm still traumatized. Yeah. Like I can't like re-traumatize myself by reading what we exactly went through, right. but also like thank you for telling the story because people need to understand what we actually went through and the trauma we went through. Um so we do and 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 so one of the things I started doing with different teams that I was on is, is like, we started talking about mental health a lot on a lot of the national collaboratives as well. But unfortunately, I really feel like it gets brushed aside still yeah, too often. Ridiculous. I feel like it's like, oh, we don't really have time to deal with that. Um, but, but just like you're saying, we have to deal with that now if we're going to stand up and, and continue on with or our staff pay for it later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Well, we are paying for it right now. We mm -hmm. don't have staff. 
we're, we're paying right. and hospitals too. We, we hospitals do not have too. staff hospitals too. There's hospitals that are closing. There's nursing homes that are closing because they, they don't have the staff. I mean, I go into some of these nursing homes and they have entire wings closed because they don't have the staff to, to, to bring in new residents. And then you have all these beds that are filled and then you don't have enough staff. And it becomes this cold issue of like, how, who takes care of the health of the healthcare workers? Right. <laughs> like, I, and that's, and that's interesting. You talk about that. And I pray that, that we can continue to shift that paradigm because a healthcare worker comes into the industry because of their heart, their compassion, right. their empathy. This is why like we such huge, like just our hearts are so full to help other people, but we are the very last to take care of ourselves. And we're the very last to take care of each other. That's you know, right. it's almost a sign of weakness, even in the industry, like even as your colleagues, like you don't ask for help. You don't, you don't take time off. It's almost viewed as a weakness. So um, we've got to do better. And I believe we are, I believe those conversations are really starting to happen more and more. And I just pray that they continue because we desperately need that. And that, and I agree, it would be lovely. Let's bring in a trained psychologist. It should be a mandatory thing. Should, and a massage therapist. Yeah, I, mean. I don't understand. Why, I really don't understand like anybody, like I was telling the, the child welfare worker, I was like, somebody should be coming by your desk cubicle, whatever, every day and checking in on you. Yeah. And that's their job to spend time with you, hug you, tell you you're mm -hmm. a good person. We're mm -hmm. still not there. Society is valuing that as yeah. That is a that is a huge monetary gain if you think about right. it for the person. Right. You keep them from being absent, right. keep them alert and ready, and feel seen right. on a regular basis. Right. We we are human beings with real emotions. Nice. We're not robots. We're not robots, and we have, uh, from my perspective, and I can only speak to what I see, but I know our healthcare workers that I've seen. They have been traumatized. And, and they need help and they need support. And, um, and that needs to be a priority. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think about uh, our service members that see so yes. much pain and death when they're deployed. Right. And then what's, what do they get? How do they debrief right. from that? And it's like, yeah. this, it's a similar analogy, it is. you know, it's like, but we don't give any of these folks mm -mm. any time to be, to like deal with the problems that are happening, right? In the, well, right. And unfortunately, like I'm thinking about these conversations I've had with nursing home administrators and, you know, the, and, and they're just trying to hang on. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like a lot of it is they're just trying to, I mean, if you've got, let's say 50 patients and all your staff call out one day, what are you going to do? So, exactly. so you're in crisis mode. So you're not, you, you can't even, they're in crisis too, the leadership. So they're not, you know what I mean? Everybody is just, it's, it's, I, I was in Minnesota a week ago and I sat with the director of nurses and she's like, Buffy, I wake up every day. I'm tachycardic. My heart rate is high. I have high blood pressure. I don't know how much longer I can go. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I know. I just, I just don't understand how this changes in a quick enough time to deal with this. It's pretty dire. I mean, well, what I know, you know, I appreciate you saying that because it was, it was literally just a couple of weeks ago it was, well, maybe it was a week or so on mother's day weekend. I just felt because I say change can't come fast enough, yeah. honestly, because I see the pains and harms that happen every day. And so I, I know as 
we as um, citizens, we can do something more. So, you know, I'm, I'm reaching out to my, my local, um, you know, House representatives, I'm reaching out to my local senators, I'm reaching out, I'm actually going to DC in June to a congressional briefing for nursing homes. I mean, that's what I'm doing. Um, as, as people, if you have loved ones in your nursing home, get more involved, like even the hospitals, like, you know, find out what you can do. Maybe there's some volunteering position that you can do to sit with, you know, the staff or the residents. There's something any, all of us can do, especially um, if you have a loved one in one of these, these nursing facilities, you know, that you can, you can do a lot more than you think, actually. You know what's interesting? I'm not sure if you heard. I'm in Washington State, and we had this thing. I think that was going to get passed was Washington Cares Act. Okay. Something. And it was essentially the governor of our state was essentially saying, "Hey, we're going to take a very tiny percentage out of your paycheck mm -hmm. to go towards nursing home long-term wow. care." Right. This is sad. People lost their mind. I'm they sure they didn't want it. A lot of people didn't want it, and it had to be put on hold. Mm. legislation because there was such negative blowback mm. about it. And I went to my wife, I'm like, okay, what's the big deal? Like, should not everybody can afford to be in these the different places, like, especially at this well, point in your life. I think when, I mean, I can understand, I don't, I obviously don't know a lot about it, yeah. but I can understand the blowback from the perspective of Anytime there's increased funding, we also must have increased accountability towards sure. that funding. You know, there was some, like there was hundreds of millions of dollars, even in the pandemic that went towards facilities that ended up in, in, True. you know, in, in stakeholder, you know, in, in your yeah. investors pockets. And that should never happen. That money, you know, I say we need to build, we need to grow from the top down, but we also need to build from the bottom up. We need to make sure our housekeepers, our laundry service, our food service, our the, the, the people washing the floors and, and the CNAs, yeah. we need to make sure they're getting the funding that is being allocated to them. So without that, uh, it's like, yeah, I mean, the, the solution is not just throw more money. If you add more money, add more accountability towards that money, but let's, let's have a plan, you know, let's have a plan to support and help them more. How do you add the accountability? I mean, it seems like that's so much higher than it's at a level where like, it feels secretive. Like it feels well, like, how do you, well, there isn't you know, as much yeah. accountability right now. And that's the problem. And there is, so, you know, it's interesting, the timing of all this, and it makes, it does give me hope. And so we talk about, it's almost dire and, yeah. but there is a lot of action happening right now. That's it was good. during the state of the union address, president Biden talked about nursing home um, changes. And there is a lot right now happening. There is a call for higher patient to staff ratio. There is a call for more in, for higher wages. There is a call for increased accountability. There's also a call for lots of money for surveys. So fine. They can have that. You know, uh, you can't just get but, everything. No, that's right, I mean, right? <laughs> but, but there is a call to more of this, you know, supportive and, and actionable, um, you know, in, information so that we can help. So the accountability, there is a call for that too. Like we, we need accountability. I mean, there was a CEO of one of the largest nursing homes that, you know, into the, into like, I think it was April of, of the pandemic, he, you know, quit and took $50 million with them, you know, and it's like, there was a CMS investigation, yeah. you know, so, so it's like, there are things that happen like that. And so we need to address that. But again, I'm saying, let's not punish the entire industry. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's focus on those bad actors um, and then really put our, our attention towards what, how we can help the others. So, um, 
That's really important. So do you think that, you know, there's two sides to a lot of things or three sides, depending on how you look at lots of sides, right? (laughs) It's like all over. Sure. What's the, if this is even appropriate, what is the, what are the positive changes from the pandemic that basically like when something bad happens, we tend to see it as just bad, but sometimes a crisis creates an opportunity as well on some being sensitive to what's happened, obviously, but has there been something that has shifted the industry or you see an opening that this has created potentially like maybe more eyes on nursing home than there ever was before? Yeah. I I mean, this is what I'm seeing right now. And I do hope it is the silver lining. I talk about this as well, is that let's use this as an opportunity to advance some of the fact that our eyes have been open to the the challenges in long-term care to, I mean, a lot of it's been known for a long time, but our our eyes are open to the state of preparedness to um, the other infections that occur. So let's use this time and, and work on it. And I truly believe that's what we're doing. And, and um, those are the conversations that are happening. And, and I know I have a big voice and so I'll keep shouting it from the rooftops. And, and there's a lot of people with me that are really advocating. I mean, every single day I see stuff coming out of the um, nursing home association and leading age and these advocate groups that are just, just petitioning for this um, improvement, improvement, improvement. So I feel like now is the time and the attention is there. And so let's use it to advance these practices and make it better than it's ever been before. Which is why I wanted to talk to you because I think these are issues that just don't get highlighted enough, especially on podcasts. Mm -hmm. It's often a very similar business space. There's nothing wrong with business, but like there are topics happening in our, our world that are just not getting covered. Right. There's not the, the exposure. So the more mm-hmm. we have these conversations and people like yourself get on, it's like, hey, open your mind. This mm-hmm. is happening. Like, well, and it's very know? rare that, I mean, almost everybody I talked to, everybody has grandparents or loved ones of or, course. you know, like this actually impacts all of us, all, right? It's a universal all thing. Of us. It is a universal <laughs> thing. And it's like, nobody wants to talk about it. So let's talk about it. Let's do something about it. It's so it's interesting. You said nobody wants to talk about it. Is that because of kind of the kind of this whole the kind of the issues that we have with end of life with a lot of people like this, this, this sense of our mortality? You think that's part of the dis- lack of why that discussion happens? Like we're afraid to have these discussions about this time in life. I, I think it's more powerless. I think people feel powerless, powerless. over these, over these, this situation. Mm-hmm. I can speak to my own example. When my grandparents were needing to go into a nursing home, I, I was very young. Um, they refused help. So it, I felt very powerless. And I think as consumers of healthcare, we don't really understand what this means. Um, we don't understand what the care should be. Um, and so, and we're very busy in our lives. So it's almost just easier to not put attention towards it because there's so many other things we're looking at and, and we just, you know, that's not happening to us now. So I'm not going to think about it. Right. You know, and, um, I talk in my book that this could have any one of us at any time at any age could need this type of healthcare service. I talk about a 24 year old in my book that got in a car accident and she was in the nursing home six weeks. And I talk about a mom whose son was admitted to a nursing home, I think when he was 15 and Mm. spent over 20 years and she cared for him and she'd go and visit him. And so this isn't 
and even if it is just for our elders, so what? Like, but it, it I mean, we want it for, we want good care. And we want the service available. We don't want to wake up one day and there's, there's no post-acute care to help us, yeah. right? Like we need this service. And if you're in a position where you need this service, you are grateful. I was grateful when my grandparents, because I knew they were being cared for because I couldn't care for them at that time. So we need this service and we need people to advocate for change and, um, and to be prepared for when they do have a loved one that needs this care, right? Preparation. That's the word. Again, it yep. keeps coming up in here. Does it? Preparation, <laughs> right? I mean, I think it's a difficult part of the human condition. We have a hard time with preparation, mm -hmm. you know, being proactive and, mm -hmm. and say, hey, let's be prepared for, you know, a rainy day type of thing, you know, and yeah, we don't like it. We don't like to face that, no. you know, it just, it's difficult, but I'm so thankful there's people like you, Dr. Buffy out there that are sounding the alarm and visiting places mm -hmm. and spending your time and your life yeah. in these places. This is truly amazing. And I have a great respect. You talk about respect. I have a great respect for you and for all healthcare providers. Yes. I really do. It's uh it's so necessary. And I was fortunate. I, when I was in college, I took a death and dying course mm. and I had, I was, uh, we were required to volunteer in a nursing home for like four months. So wow. I spent a lot of time with people yeah. in nursing homes and visited my wife in nursing homes when she was working in those environments. So, uh, I guess it just struck a chord with me when, uh, you were presented to me as someone nice. to talk to us. I said, yeah, this, this needs to be talked about. <laughs> yeah. This needs to be talked about. Yeah. So well, I thank you. you. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Thank you for coming <laughs> on. Really appreciate it. Please tell everyone how they can get the book or connect with you. Yeah. Yeah. So my book, um, it's called broken how the global pandemic uncovered a nursing home system in need of repair and the heroic staff fighting for change. It is available on Amazon um, in hardback, paperback, e-Kindle. And also you can reach me, um, at um, my website's ipcwell.com. And we have just tons of information, um, that you can utilize. And my contact information is Dr. Buffy at ipcwell.com. And I'd be more than happy to assist or, you know, chat and just continue this movement forward so that we can continue to, uh, advancing best practices in this healthcare system. Thank you, Dr. Buffy. Appreciate your time. You're awesome. Thanks really... for having me. I appreciate you too. Of course, everyone, Dr. Buffy here. <laughs> Thanks. When it's time for an adventure on the open highway, one quick call to American Family Insurance gets you headed in the right direction. Our travel peace of mind package is there if you encounter a bump in the road. From roadside assistance to rental car coverage, we have you covered. Find a local agent or get a quote at amfam.com. American Family Insurance. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, SI and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.